Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. This is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with brothers Macaroo and brothers Amos. Uh, the day's date is February 16th, 2020, or 62.60. I'd like to start out with sports. I've always been fascinated by the intertwine between race, sports, politics, sociology, etc. Uh, and I'm quoting directly from African Liberation Media, site put together by these brothers Amos and Brother Macaru. Brother Macaru writes, as it relates to the Negro League. Black ball players' absence reinforced the prevailing p- belief that African Americans were inherently inferior athletically and intellectually with weak abdominal muscles. Little endurance prone to cracking under pressure. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of a statement made by Paul Bear Bryant bell cow in the deep south who decided to integrate around 1970. The book chronicles that change. Rolling back the tide, I believe the name of it, uh, where he integrated, which ushered in the decline of major black college football during that year with Bear being the bell cow. Prior to that, he said that uh, he could not find an African-American athlete in the state of Alabama who qualified for entrance athletically or intellectually, the state that produced Willie Mays, Joe Lewis, several other notables, Willie McCovey, Tommy Agee, Cleon Jones. Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron, the hammer, you know, all from Africatown in close proximity to that area. It conjured up thoughts of the great Jack Johnson, who would deliberately expose his abdomen to refute that theory and basically challenge white boxers to hit him in the stomach. You know, the participant always remember the rejoinder, you're lucky to be here, you're fortunate to be here. Uh, humiliating experiences that many brothers have to encounter. I've seen so many brothers in my athletic life years ago in tears, guns on campus pointed at them et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, suffice it to say, you know, in my experience, I, as well as many of my teammates, we consider more or less to be a menace, more so than an asset on that campus, mm-hmm. per se. Always the rejoinder, you're lucky to be here. <laughs> you know, are you ungrateful? Or you need to show more gratitude? I don't want you listening to this speaker, even though, you know, we were told upon entrance to many of these campuses, you had to do two things, play ball and get an education. You know, what you think I'm trying to do, coach, but not like that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Another thing in the news, who killed brother Amawale? Malcolm X, El Hodge, Malik El Shabazz. Interestingly, I was observing African Liberation Media today, uh, the site, 
early this morning to be exact, John Ali makes an, an admission on WOVM in Chicago, which relates nothing short of his vitriol toward El Hajj, Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X. Um, got a chance to view a documentary put together by Brother Amar Shabazz, and he talks about the role of the Mosque 25 in Newark as well as other accompanying mosques who uh, were interested in the termination of the life of Brother Malcolm X. It's all in the news. You know, one thing I like about Brother X and his critique, of course, we're coming up on his uh, unfortunate transition from this planet at the hands of jealous individuals, um, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. And, you know, whatever critique you have over ideology, uh, you know, we ultimately, I think, well, it's obvious that we have to you know, go beyond criticizing and implement some plans to implement is really what I want to say, or bring a certain ideology into existence. You know, suffice it to say this brother was straight-jacketed, criticizing the nation on many, in, on many occasions for not really trying to implement a separate state solution. So, uh, you know, without further ado, we got Brothers Amos and Brothers Macaroo here. Um, they'll share their thoughts, and we will connect concepts. Invariably, we will find a connective thread to what's espoused here. This is the African Liberation Media. Go ahead, man. Yeah, I, I'll let Amos give his review of the, uh, the documentary, but I just just piggybacking on what you said there regarding um, this significant event in in our history. You know, as we are starting another year of black history, we always go for black history years, not black history weeks or months. But on February 13, 1920, a brilliant brother and athlete by the name of Rube Foster convened a meeting in Kansas City and launched the uh, Negro National League. And, uh, you know, this, is, this was a significant uh, undertaking because, once again, these, these brothers not only competed against each other, but they would also have an opportunity to compete against the Babe Ruths, Lou Gehrig's, and Jimmy Fox's of the, uh, of the segregated major leagues and often defeated them in games. Uh, but that, uh, you know, that's something that that uh, that should be discussed within the context of, you know, how uh, it came about, the demise came about. And uh, but we'll let Brother almost go ahead and talk about the. Uh, you know, Brother, what, what I feel to realize at the time of the integration of the Negro League, the Kansas City Monarchs averaged over 60,000 people per game. And this is what Branch Rickey saw. Now, Jackie Robinson has the UCLA record something where in the neighborhood of eight or 10 yards per carry. As a football player. As a football player, baseball player, as a baseball player, um, 
They said baseball was actually his third or fourth sport. It was the third or both, uh, uh, fourth best sport. In right. fact, uh, uh, I think it was a great satchel page. He said we looked at Jackie and we realized that he was really not uh, measuring up. And uh, many people believe that uh, this was the straw that broke the camel's back uh, in the life of Josh Gibson. It's been said that he actually died of a broken heart. A man who hit over six, over 900 home runs once hit a ball completely out of Yankee Stadium. But Josh Gibson clearly did not have the temperament, you know, within the context of, you know, white expectations. Uh, I did have a chance, brother, to see uh, one of the barnstorming teams out of the old Negro League the Indianapolis Clowns, whose existence continued well into the 1960s. Um, when I think back on it, I remember such names as the Baltimore Barons, the, I'm sorry, the Birmingham Barons, the New York Black Crackers, the Baltimore Elite Giants, the Kansas City Monarchs, the Homestead Grays, the Pittsburgh Couriers. One of those teams owned by quote-unquote, the respectable businessmen of the black uh, community in Pittsburgh, the other team owned by underworld figures, <laughs> pimps and madams. And there was a tremendous rivalry as chronicled uh, by the Pittsburgh Courier. My parents used to get that paper. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't doing any reading, but <laughs> I would listen to the conversations, you know, it was you know, well after uh, the demise of the Negro League, um, you know, the, the day in history, the Carriers played the Homestead Grays back in the 1940s, and those reviews. Uh, but uh, you know, on the Malcolm X, I just had to say that, brother. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. That's brother. all good. Yeah. So I watched the documentary, "Who Killed Malcolm X," on Netflix. And what it really showed is the power of media because much of the information that was within the documentary was information that had been published uh, by either authors or by uh, lawyers in the past. So if you are uh, an avid reader or follower of the life of Malcolm X or information on his life and books on his life, then you would have already been aware of a lot of that information that was in the documentary. But because majority of people are more prone to film than to reading these days, it really elevated and escalated the conversation amongst the masses of people. It really spread throughout social media and it shows you how media can start to mobilize actions to take place because we saw that now the New York DA is, is uh, reviewing, re-reviewing the assassination of Malcolm X because specifically because of the conversations around this Netflix documentary. So that in itself is powerful. It's just like um, a lot of people didn't really remember who Linda Fairstein was until the When They See Us documentary appeared on Netflix and then everybody went on social media and started attacking her and calling for her to, you know, to lose her uh, position. Um, so 
it really shows you how when you create visuals, you really start to attract the minds of the people. And this is really one thing that our ancestors knew, even going back to ancient Kemet, which is why our language system was a visual language. It was a language that showed pictures and images of things that our ancestors saw expressed throughout nature. And it helped people internalize our culture even more than just words on a page. So I thought that that was good about the documentary. There were some things in the documentary that I had not seen before. Uh, and for those of you who haven't watched it yet, I don't want to you know, play the spoiler, but the the commercial or the TV ad, you know, with Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker running for election, where he, the scene where he shakes hands with William uh, Bradley, who was the guy who was known as the shotgun man or the man who pulled the trigger on the sawed off shotgun that eventually killed Malcolm X. Um, that was my first time actually seeing that TV commercial ad. And then I also thought that the um, filmmakers, I know that Henry Gates, Skip Gates, Lewis, Henry Lewis Gates was one of the executive producers. But I think overall, from a graphic standpoint, from a visual standpoint, I thought they did an excellent job um, in that area. You know, going to different locations, getting live footage, not really depending on just images. They also did a real good job of reproducing a lot of the old film to enhance the vi visual quality of the film. You know, a lot of these video files and clips are clips pulled back from the 1960s. So you're talking about older cameras that are being used at this time. They're reproducing it and repixelating it so that it looks almost HD now, along with the uh, motion graphics and the animations that they use. I thought they did a very good job with that. And I also think that they really showed uh, a lot of everyday documentation. So you here you have the guy who is, and I can't remember his name right at the top of my head right now, but the guy who is acting as the researcher. Ab Abdul Rahman Muhammad. Muhammad, yeah. Acting as, he's acting as the researcher and he's going to different offices, reading different documents. Even the way that they took the documents and, and did different animations where they started to raise the words off of the page and highlight it so that the, the, the viewer would really be able to connect with that part of the film, I thought was good. A lot of the documents that they showed were documents that I had never seen in regards to the FBI records on people like William Bradley and then other FBI records like Gullah Jack and Bob Markle talked about last week where they blacked out a lot of the names to protect a lot of the people who we think that they probably were working with um, against Malcolm and even against the Nation of Islam. But what it really showed was the FBI's um, influence or the FBI's involvement, I should say, in the assassination of Malcolm X. Not only the FBI, but the NYPD, to some levels, involvement with the assassination and 
it's hard not to watch it and see that connection when you see the lack of security that was at the Audubon Ballroom. When you see, of course, we know about uh, Eugene Roberts, but when you see him not ever being interviewed um, by the DA or the prosecutor, okay, when you see you know his identity being protected, when you see the FBI knowing that William Bradley was possibly the shooter, but refusing to hand that information over to the NYPD. So that leads you to question, how was he connected with the FBI for them to protect his identity the way that they did? Um, the layman or the average person would just say, you know, it was the nation that killed Malcolm. And we don't know to the extent the truth of that, but what we can see clearly is that the FBI had an imprint on Malcolm X's assassination. And I think that the documentary did an outstanding job of really elevating that conversation um, and making it popular now that a lot of people are talking about it, which hopefully now, I believe Butler's still alive. So, you I mean, they didn't, now I think he signed a petition to get the case uh, re-reviewed uh, for wrongful conviction for him, uh, which will probably be an astronomical amount of money that he'll be paid if it is found that he was indeed uh, innocent of what he was charged for. You're talking about a brother, man, I'm <clears throat> reading from um, African Liberation Media, spent 20 years mm -hmm. for a crime that he did not commit. You know, Malcolm, upon his trips to the East, talked about he knew what the nation could do and what they couldn't do because he trained them. Mm -hmm. And he saw complicity with uh, higher agencies mm -hmm. uh, in his murder, assassination attempt, committed while he was on the Arabian Peninsula, but his diet consisted of one meal a day. You know, had he ingested more food that might have been poisoned, would have been poisoned. And Malcolm know, was only Malcolm was only 178 pounds. He was 6'3", 178 pounds. And another thing, to your point, it talked about how, how Elijah Muhammad was tapped uh, 24 hours a day. He was surveilled. All of his conversations were pretty much surveilled by the FBI. Um, Malcolm, the same way. And, and he also talked about how he felt like the CIA was following him on his trips. Um but another thing I wanted to talk about is the uh, the issue where Malcolm was was silenced as a minister by Elijah Muhammad. So we know about him speaking out when he was informed not to speak out or when everybody was informed not to speak out because of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And... When you are when you are a member of an organization, anybody who's ever been a member of an organization, there are specific rules that once those rules are set, a solid organization, you have to follow those rules. My biggest problem with it is once Malcolm completed, is he made a mistake? Okay, he 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 disobeyed the orders of the leader of the organization. Once he, it's almost like Michael Vick, 
Michael Vick went to prison for dog fighting. Michael Vick comes out of prison. People still want to imprison Michael Vick as he if he as if he did not already serve the time for the crime that he committed. So once Malcolm finished his 90 day uh, sentence, so to speak, and they didn't want to reinstate him, that's what showed the embassy, the, the envious and the uh, jealousy of the members of the nation against Malcolm because I felt like it was already there. It was already there, but they really didn't have the action from him to punish him until he spoke out and, and disobeyed the orders of Elijah Muhammad. Then when you don't reinstate him, it shows that you already had these feelings about him in the first place because if it was simply about going against that order at the end of those 90 days, they should have came back and said, okay, now you've demonstrated because he submitted himself. He demonstrated during those 90 days that he was willing to submit to the ruling of Elijah Muhammad in the nation. And then after that time passed, they still didn't want to um, lift the ban. So for the people who try to say, who try to just vilify Malcolm as if it was all him, you're not being, you, you, you're not being very objective to both sides. I can understand the nation's side from disobeying the order, but what I don't understand is the continued punishment of your own brother after he's already served the time that he was supposed to serve for what he did. Yeah, I can say the thing about Khalid Muhammad too. Right. You know, I mean, what did we learn over those 40, 45 years plus, you know, as, as it relates to us being able to sit down and mitigate those differences? And you know, the same situation occurring all over again, uh, clearly, you know, the CIA was culpable for many reasons that you and Mekaru and everybody else can identify, those who read some of the information. It was incumbent upon the CIA and governmental agencies to keep the black struggle disconnected uh, from those international allies. You know, be it Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese government, the brothers on the continent, you know, and et cetera. So I don't want to get too much into it. But yeah, brother, that's obviously that's a fair assessment. Now, what Betty Shabazz said was that the FBI, CIA will be behind it and they will sit back. This is your Betty talking and allow the nation to do it. Now, this is his system. wife. This is his wife, mm -hmm. you know, making this comment. But, uh, you know, in the words of Brother Karinga, what beautiful things would the brother be saying had he lived? Andrew Young. A Dr. King disciple said Malcolm potentially had the greatest potential in terms of offering solutions to many of the problems that plague our inner cities. You know, and it's coming from Dr. Young. Um, and of course, Coretta Scott King, picture I had never seen talking with Dr. I'm talking with uh, uh, Brother Amarali, Malcolm X. Called him, you know, one of the most intelligent men that she had ever met. Tell Dr. King I'm not in here to cause any trouble, but I think I have another solution. 
I'm trying. I'm paraphrasing best I can, mm-hmm. and I felt that if you know the oppressors, if white supremacists saw me here, they would give Dr. King what he wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, something to that effect. You know, I, I wouldn't have a problem posting that now. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I think. Uh, well, there's a whole lot, and 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 we'll we'll publish a lot of information this week because. Friday is February 21st, and that will be 55 years since uh, our courageous and esteemed ancestor was taken out of his development and off the planet by our enemies. And let, we should be crystal clear. Everybody, everybody who participated in that, wittingly, unwittingly, remotely, directly, or whatever, were operating in the interests of our enemies. And the reason why I say that is this. It's, it's my belief that Baba Omawali, Malcolm X, el Haj Malik El-Shabazz, was in 1965 the most, the most, not only the most dedicated, but the most significant, the most valuable, the most necessary African on the planet. And this includes African heads of state like Kwame Nkrumah and Secretary and Julius Nyeri and others. And the reason why I say that is that, that Malcolm, Malcolm was more important not only than, than the presidents of African countries, he was more important than any black leader in the United States or in the Caribbean. The reason being that Malcolm possessed the capacity to unify all of those forces around specific issues and the issue which he was working on was bringing the United States before the nation, the United Nations on charges of violating the human rights of Africans in America. And even though the uh, United States had veto power on the Security Council, it would have been a symbolic thing. But within the context of the Cold War, where the United States and the Soviet Union were fighting each other for spheres of influence, it would, have given, it would have given African people some uh, enormous options and uh, some ranges in order to do some things, to carve out some things for ourselves. And so because of Malcolm's international stature and because of his growing, um, uh, his outreach to Dr. King and others in the civil rights movement, uh, the young leaders of, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee by this time, with the probably exception of John Lewis, were already all Malcolm disciples. Baba Mikasa, who we interviewed here, Willie Ricks, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, Cleve Sellers, Ruby Dars Robinson, all these people were, were Malcolm disciples at that time already. That's why they invited him to Selma on February 4th, 1965, to speak. So this is the, he had to be taken out because of the potential threat he posed to global European imperialism, global European imperialism. And, of course, he, he had also his contacts in other parts of the developing world, Dr. Fidel Castro Ruz and Che Guevara, both of whom he had met, uh, he had met, you know, uh, he was working uh, also with uh, people like Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria, Nasser for whatever that's worth in Egypt, and the Saudis for whatever that's worth. But I'm just saying, 
This is the international stature that this brother had. Uh, I, I think the documentary, uh, despite uh, some things that were not discussed, but that are left for others to perhaps raise money and produce something to deal more in depth with the issues. Hold on, I don't want to cut you off, but with, I want to expound on what you just said. Okay. About the leaders that he met with. Just think about this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are leaders in our community now who have never met with a president from another country. And Malcolm met with multiple presidents from other countries. They don't have that analysis, bro. Plus, they are lackeys of the power structure. That's my immediate thought. Uh, if I may interject, brother, if I may, and in fact, um, you know, 4.30 this morning, you know, to <laughs> kind of uh, augment the point that you're making here, this Bloomberg uh, has hired black prostitutes, okay? <laughs> that includes, of all people, Chicago Representative Bobby Rush, ex-Black Panther Party, headed to the house the night Fred Hampton was killed. Bloomberg hired him? Yes, sir, for an endorsement. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, San Francisco Mayor London, uh, I can't think of his last name. He has purchased more mayor uh, endorsements in the top, 100 cities than any other candidate. You know, it's, I don't know how to describe it, you know, just a, you know, years ago, uh, Cross, one of the writers, you know, talked about the instrument of power. We talk a lot about here, power here. It's, it's effective as taking a man to the mountaintop and showing him the kingdom below. But that's, that's really not as applicable as the Judas factor uh, as espoused by uh the writer and, and Kwame Ture put it best, okay, I'm, I'm collecting my thoughts here. Uh, Dr. Ture, a.k.a. Stokely Carmichael, he said at least Judas had the decency to kill himself. <laughs> and you got Negro preachers. But that's another example. Kwame, okay. Kwame Ture met with multiple African leaders. And Asian leaders. Right. Yeah, yeah. And today we, we have leaders and nobody's sitting at the table I'm not going to say nobody, because I do know a couple of people who are. But it's not as prominent now to have our leaders be representatives of the African struggle in America to the diaspora. Who are the leaders, brother? Can you name some, please? Because, <laughs> well, you know, of, because, because we're talking about the Congressional Black Rockers, yeah. and I don't think you are. But see, here's the thing. Here's the yeah. thing. I mean, even... Pelosi took a delegation of people, including John Lewis and adjuncts of the Democratic Party, Ilan Omar and others to Ghana, you know, uh, oh, to celebrate God. the quote unquote year return. If people go to Africa to, today, who would be the leaders that they're meeting with? Ninety nine percent of them wouldn't be. I mean, no, there's nobody of the stature. I mean, you know, I mean, there's just. Maybe a couple of a uh, couple of uh, exceptions that that you could get to, but 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 I want I want to get back I want to get back to Malcolm because okay. there were some things uh, 
like I said, the, the documentary didn't didn't deal with the institutional forces as much as it as it focused on individuals. And I understand that given who the producers were, you know, he had a, a white organization that actually, uh, you know, did the finance and arc media. So, and, you know, with the presence of Gates, we, we know that it wasn't going to be anything that was going to be extremely radical or, or whatnot. But nevertheless, like I, what I was saying was that the, the information that has been presented gives an opportunity to people like, you know, Dr. Jared Ball, Zach Kondo, Carl Evans, and others to now fill in the gaps. So you, 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 can, you can fill in the gaps that, 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 that wasn't covered. Um, Omar Shabazz, uh, a film producer himself, you know, he, he, he was critical of the documentary, but he recommended that everybody see it. And I think there are a lot of reasons why people should see it. You know, one of the things that uh, the brother almost touched on, the FBI admitted they had nine informants in the Audubon. Got that's just the FBI. Now, we know New York police intelligence had people in there. The CIA probably had people in there. Okay. So, so I mean, so, see, so, so, these, so these are the kind of things. See, the, the European model, the European model, uh, the European media, the sensationalized European media would have us focus on individuals. So that's why it's like who, 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 who. And it's never... Why it's never what was behind the faces that are being put out there right now, because the Innocence Project has taken up the case of Muhammad uh, Aziz, formerly known as Norman Three uh, X Butler, and they're going to try to uh, get him exonerated based on a wrongful conviction. But if the New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. does reopen the case. Do we expect Cyrus Vance Jr. to indict the United States government? I, 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 I can't see that happening. He, he, he may give some implications, but uh, he may throw out some innuendos. But the fact of the matter is, and we have seen these documents for years, and it was great that the brother showed the documents yeah. and that he highlighted key points uh, and what you saw in the documents, which are heavily redacted, the documents that Brother Muhammad was able to get, all of the documents that David Garrow has, and David Garrow has volumes of documents, Carl Evans has volumes of documents, Zach Kondo has volumes of documents, other people have volumes of documents, but they're all redacted. They are heavily redacted. Sometimes you'll read the documents, and I posted, uh, I, ha I have a blog post, title of the uh, FBI files on Malcolm X, which uh, the files began in 1953, but I'm sure Army Intelligence and others were collecting information on him before then. All of those files are heavily redacted. The United States government could solve the problem by releasing the complete files unredacted. The fact that, that they will not do that indicates that they still have something to hide. And it can't be just the names of informants. It's got to be something deeper than the names of informants. The documentary only named, only showed a picture of Willie X. Bradley. Okay. Talmadge Hare, who Carl Evans severely criticizes Hare's 
testimony as he criticizes uh, Norman Butler's testimony. But Talmadge Hare identified, he gave, he gave in his affidavit to William Kunstler, he gave four names. So as Omar Shabazz says, why don't we have pictures? There have to be pictures of these other people somewhere. Now, one of the first things I read about the assassination way back in the 1970s, uh, there was this white socialist named George Brightman. He was the first guy to start publishing books about Malcolm. Before nobody, nobody else would touch the subject. Brightman started publishing books about him. Uh, Reverend Albert Clay, you know, praises uh, George Brightman. Uh, George Brightman has a little pamphlet on the assassination of Malcolm X. One of the things that George Brightman says was at the at the uh, at the Audubon, the police held a press conference and said two suspects were arrested. We know one of the suspects was Tamage Hare. That was the first press conference they had. Brightman has it uh, has identified. He has the document in his book. The next day, the very same police spokesman, captain, commissioner, chief, or whoever, got up there and said they had one suspect in custody. They never explained what happened to the to the second suspect. Never explained. And that was one thing, you know, uh, I, I'm going to repost uh, the interview we did with Carl Evans. And I, that's one thing I forgot to ask Carl Evans. What about the missing second suspect? So, so. The names they are hiding, the names they are hiding could be and probably are William O'Neill types of names. People who were actually employed, who very well could have actually been, you know, agents themselves within, uh, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Because J. Edgar Hoover said point blank, this man must be stopped. Oh, yeah. The same thing Elijah Muhammad said. So, I mean, uh, I'm also going to post, uh, and I don't know how much time I have to, to read this. Uh, I have a blog post called Malcolm's Fatal Freudian Slip, and the subtitle is How the Assassination of President Kennedy Led to the Assassination of, of Omar Wally Malcolm X. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I am going to post it. Um, but let me, I'll just read a part of it because, you know, we are coming up on the 21st, and I, and uh, we are going to publish a lot of information about Malcolm this week. The tragedy of February 21st, 1965, was set in motion by a Freudian slip on December 1st, 1963, when Malcolm called the assassination of President John Kennedy a case of the chickens coming home to roost. Malcolm had been told by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, also known as the Messenger of Allah, to refrain from commenting on Kennedy's assassination. In making that Freudian slip, Malcolm was simply repeating what he had been taught since 1948, that America would be divinely punished for its sins, particularly against African people, if it did not repent. That's what he had always been taught. This was deep in his mind. It's just like when these white people are sitting around and all of a sudden they, they Public, they, they, they blurt out the N-word. <laughs> it's in there, so it's going to come out. Malcolm was punished for speaking the truth. There's such a thing in this world as divine reciprocity. God is not mocked, but it was a truth that Malcolm was not supposed to speak at that moment. He was supposed to adhere to an edict driven by hypocritical political correctness. The enemies of African people were incredulously able to exploit Malcolm's Freudian slip, as Brother almost said, into a nasty, emotionally driven, and use that cover to eliminate the most serious threat to institutionalizing imperialist white supremacy of that time frame. 
Prior to the assassination of John Kennedy in 1963, the Nation of Islam had scheduled a program on December 1st featuring The Messenger. The Messenger had to cancel his appearance and he authorized Malcolm, his recently named national minister, to speak on his behalf. The Messenger said of Malcolm, said of Malcolm when making that announcement, this is my most, this was on September 29th. This is what, this is what he said. This is what the messenger said about Malcolm on September 29th. This is my most faithful, hardworking minister. He will follow me until he dies. And within two months, the man is silenced. Based on COINTELPRO wiretaps reported by Carl Evans, the messenger's initial, com initial comments on Kennedy's, Kennedy's assassination included the remark, this isn't a day of mourning for Muslims. That devil, that devil's death doesn't concern us. Those comments would be consistent with the messenger's prophecies regarding a race of devils. Hakeem Jamal, who happens to be Malcolm's cousin, said of NOI members, we all looked at the Kennedy's assassination as though it was a sign from God that the devil's day was rapidly coming to an end. Per Malcolm, within hours after the assassination, every Muslim minister received from Mr. Muhammad a directive, in fact, two directives. Every minister was ordered to make no remarks at all concerning the assassination, and Mr. Muhammad instructed, if pressed for a comment, we should say no comment. According to Manning Marble, the messenger had previously warned Malcolm about President Kennedy. In August 1963, prior to uh, uh, Muhammad's instructions, Regarding the march on Washington, the message had written Malcolm with another warning. Be careful about mentioning Kennedy in your talks and printing matters by name. Use the USA or the American government. The messenger's prophecies obviously didn't exclude Kennedy, but he didn't want him singled out. So we asked, asked the question, why? This last thing I'm going to read regarding, regarding the December 21st, December 1st event, Malcolm said, the title of my speech was God's Judgment of White America. It was a theme familiar to me, as you know, you sow what you sow, so shall you reap. Or well, the hypocritical American white man was reaping what he had sowed. So th those were Malcolm's comments. And uh, when, uh, when they asked Malcolm the question, uh, because he went he went through the speech without saying anything about Kennedy. And this these are these are Malcolm's words. The question and answer period open. I suppose inevitably with someone asking me, what do you think about President Kennedy's assassination? Without a second thought, I said what I honestly felt. That is, as I saw it, as a case of the chickens coming home to roost. I said that the hate in the white man had not stopped with the killing of defenseless black people, but that hate allowed to spread unchecked finally has struck down this country's chief of state. Malcolm, without a second thought, it was a Freudian slip. It was in there. It came out. But it gave the agents within the nation of Islam and the United States government a chance to exploit a growing rift. Now, one of the things Carl Evans points out, Malcolm started the Muhammad Speaks newspaper. He was the founder of the newspaper. Malcolm's sister, Ella Collins, called Malcolm in about June of 1963 and asked him, had, had he noticed over the past several months that the Muhammad Speaks newspaper had no coverage of him, including the, the weekly articles he submitted. And Malcolm was so busy working, he hadn't even paid any attention to it. 
So there were people within the nation of Islam who were already organizing, you know, this uh, acrimony between the messenger and Malcolm all throughout 1963 and even before because they even stopped cover. The man founded the newspaper. He's the, he's, the, he's the national spokesman for the messenger. And they stopped covering him in the newspaper. So they were already building up to this point where, you know, they could execute uh, this split and then use that uh, as, a, as a basis for carrying out an assassination of, uh, of a brother who had unlimited potential and quite frankly, even though we we want to move towards a more decentralized type of leadership, we have to recognize that there are extraordinary people. I don't know, would Kemet have ever been unified without Narma? I don't know enough about who Narma's lieutenants and other generals were to to be able to do that. Uh, you know, we know that Toussaint Louverture had had Dessaline and Christo. So I'm, I'm assuming he had some others, but there are extraordinary people. And Malcolm just happened to be one of those people that was extraordinary. And it's a loss from which we haven't recovered. Now, you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, you will hear people in the nation of Islam saying we made Malcolm, we cleaned him up, we put him out there to speak. And all of, and all of that's true. All of that's true. But that's a fragment. That doesn't tell the, the whole story. There's no doubt that that one of the things that probably connected Malcolm to the messenger was as a child sitting down listening to his parents talk about Marcus Garvey and watching the work they were doing in the Garvey movement. It was kind of easy to make that connection once the seeds had been planted. So, you know, these are the kinds of things. But 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 when the people in the nation say, well, we made Malcolm, they kind of stopped there. They don't also say they silenced Malcolm. They don't say that uh, we said Malcolm was worthy of death. They don't say we printed uh, cartoons in the Muhammad Speaks newspaper with Malcolm's head cut off with horns coming out. They don't say that after Malcolm was killed, they praised the killers. They don't say that 30 years later that they still regarded him as a traitor. Tell the whole story. Tell the whole, if you're going to tell the story, tell the whole story. But, but we have to be very careful we have to be very careful because our enemies still have the capacity to manipulate our people because so many of us are still captives of Eurocentric, egotistical individualism. And a lot of people can't, like you just said, with the manipulation, Come a lot on. of people can't even think for themselves. Come on. I mean, that's one, another thing I noticed even watching documentary is, is that a lot of the people in the documentary were still thinking with somebody else's mind. They weren't using their own mind to actually think and put things together. And 50 plus years later, despite all of the information that has been presented. And, and one of the things I'll say is this, and great men and great women can see above the clouds. And what that means is, if you ever been on an airplane and you take off, anybody knows that flying through the clouds or flying below the clouds is the worst weather. When you fly above the clouds, that's when you experience the less turbulence that you will experience because the weather is clear. You can see things clearly. 
a lot of our people can never see past the clouds, let alone above the clouds. So a lot of that judgment is clouded mm -hmm. based on what other people feed to them. So if you have two giants that can look above the clouds and look each other's look look at each other in the face, face to face, they can start to see flaws that you may not be able to see as somebody who can't see above the clouds. Wow. You're still looking up at that person where as the other person is looking directly at that person and, and saying, I see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so these are some of the things that Malcolm started to call out. Mm -hmm. That, you know, people can call him a traitor or people can call him these things and that, but are you thinking with your mind or are you thinking with somebody else's mind? A <laughs> couple of thoughts, brother, uh, comes to mind. Gil Scott Heron, vultures circling beneath the dark clouds. Mm. You know, and once again, the great Marimani and the Eurocentric inculcation of thought and attitude. Marima says we carry cultural aids. <laughs> you know, and, and puts it in historical context, the Ma'afa. She makes reference to the fact that uh, it bears, it's worth repeating again, guys, um, in, in the listening audience, that, um, you know, the fact that <clears throat> during the Ma'afa, we were separated, obviously, psychologically, at the, uh, in terms of the psychodynamics of black-on-black -black crime in service of white domination, she goes back to the Ma'afa where it begins. And, uh, you know, it's clear scientifically that nature abhors a vacuum, you know, because any virus, any deadly, the Urugu virus, you know, needs a host. Mm -hmm. We have become that host in too many instances, you know, and we've talked about it too many times. And suffice to say that, you know, uh, white supremacists, the spirit, White folk do not have to be in close proximity toward us for, for us to act out their wishes and their designs and desires. Well, it's one of the things that Norma mastered, and this is why you have to learn from history, is because Norma knew that in order for him to achieve his ultimate goal, his biggest fight would be within his own people. The Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. Brother Macaroo talks about. Mm, yeah. yeah. Before you, before you can get to defeating white supremacy, as history has shown with all of our leaders, mm -hmm. they've had to fight through the wars of people within their own race, working to destroy them. And Norma, Norma displayed this on his palate, where on one side of the palate he is defeating the Asiatics, but on the other side of the palate he is also defeating Nubians, yeah, because it was people within Africa that tried to destroy him from being able to unify Kemet. Exactly. And that and that's why and that's why you know one criticism I have of Babo Mawali is that he believed in self-defense for everybody but himself. That Audubon ballroom should have I I'm not going to depend on the police. And I know that uh everybody all of the research says that every time Malcolm spoke at the ballroom there were hundreds of police there outside patrolling the streets, all kinds of stuff. On this day, there were none except for uh, there were two somewhere. Supposedly there were several, uh, you know, the guys asked, were there any plainclothes officers? You know, he, 
He didn't. He said no. <laughs> so I wouldn't. Don't depend on the enemy. There were people, whether you, maybe maybe you don't want to publicly admit that you are aligned with the Bumpy Johnson organization, but you are too valuable to the entire African world. Malcolm just didn't belong to one organization. Malcolm belonged to the entire African world because the entire African world suffered when he was taken out. He was too valuable to go out like that. He should have had his own security. And and obviously, I mean, there was Gene, Gene Roberts was there. Gene Roberts said he shot uh, hair in the leg. Uh, but then Reuben Francis, I thought Reuben Francis shot him. I thought that's who shot him. But nevertheless, they didn't search anybody. This guy, These guys walk in mm-hmm. with three weapons. Don't, that team did. Now, Shabazz says there was three teams. The Newark team walked in with three weapons including a sawed-off shotgun, if they had known there was a search. Now, I'm not saying that we, 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 we know this enemy, and so that's not saying that they wouldn't have at, at some. They were so desperate to get Malcolm, right? They may have come in the middle of the night and gunned him down in his home like they did Fred Hampton, or they may have devised a Dealey Plaza or a Lorraine Motel type of plot, but they wouldn't have been able to do it that simply if Malcolm had simply chosen to um define himself but but uh, to defend himself and i think that was I, I, and I, I and i don't see any reason why why you know we shouldn't we sh- we shouldn't recognize that we shouldn't recognize the fact that and maybe he was just so stressed out i don't know why but but you know there, there's a whole lot more to this but what i want to do uh the speech that got malcolm in trouble a lot of people uh, have never even read the speech, God's Judgment. I'm, I just want to read a few things because I know we're running out of time. A few things on the, uh, well, I guess we got, what, about six minutes. Uh, let, let me just read just a couple of lines from that speech. Malcolm said, America is the last stronghold of white supremacy. The black revolution, which is international in scope, in nature and scope, is sweeping down upon America like a raging forest fire. It is only a matter of time before America itself will be engulfed in the black flames. These black firebrands, the Negro revolt is controlled by the white man, the white fox. The Negro revolution is controlled by, the, by this white government. The leaders of the Negro revolution, the civil rights leaders, are all subsidized, influenced, and controlled by white liberals. In all of the demonstrations that are taking place in this country to desegregate lunch counters, theaters, public toilets are just artificial fires that have been ignited and fanned by the white liberals in the desperate hope that they can use this artificial revolution to fight back the real black revolution, which has already swept white supremacy out of Africa, Asia, and is sweeping it out of Latin America and is even now manifesting itself right here among the black masses in this country. History must repeat itself. America, because, because of America's evil deeds against these 22 million Negroes like Egypt and Babylon before, America now stands before the bar of justice. White America is now facing her day of judgment, and she can't escape because today God himself is the judge. So, you know, the part about uh, Kemet, you know, we know that, uh, we know that that's just uh, some the Jewish narrative on, on, on that. But, 
but but you but you see where where this where where this brother's mind was going. See, he was already looking at the, at this international struggle, and he was looking then within the confines because he was he was restricted within the nation. He was already looking beyond, you know, just the the platform of uh, the nation of Islam, looking to connect the black struggle to the worldwide struggle that was taking place at that time. And you saw the same thing with Dr. Khaled. Once he came out of the nation, you saw the African-centeredness inside of him really start to come out because you start to actually see what the real issue is. And then people can say what they want, but I've always personally felt like within Islam, there is a hatred for Africa. There is a hatred for Africa, and it, and it starts at the belief of being an Asiatic black man mm. when there has no foundation in history, factual history, life did not start in Asia. Right. Life started on the African continent. So when Malcolm got out of the nation and he became Omawali, you start to see his ideals shift towards a more Afrocentered ideology. As with the way Garvey started out. So we got to understand that as he started to evolve, he got towards the core of what our solutions need to be as far as African people here and African people in the diaspora working together for one common African goal, which is power and sovereignty and self-control for all African people. Right. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, we will publish a lot of information. I I have several blog posts and we have some other other information that we'll be publishing uh this week on El Baba Omawali because, you know, this week will be 55 years since uh, he was taken out of his development and off the planet and it's a loss from which the African world has never recovered. And this is probably one example of that. <laughs> uh Sudan Sudan, Sudan. We have a blog post on uh, Sudan has announced that they're going to pay um, $30 million to the families of the uh, 17 U.S. sailors who were killed in an Al-Qaeda attack in 2000, the USS Cole. I, I, I don't know why Sudan paying, but anyway... Poor Sudan is trying to buy their way back into the good graces of the U.S. It won't work. Ask the remaining members of the Gaddafi family how that strategy worked out for them. Sudan has agreed to pay $30 million, uh, $30 million, $30 million in the settlements to the families of 17 U.S. sailors killed in an Al-Qaeda attack on the USS Cole. 17 sailors were killed and 35 others were also wounded as a result of the attack on the ship. It was refueling in, a, in the port of Aden when it was attacked in 2000. Sudan was accused of allowing al-Qaeda to train at Sudanese bases. So uh, the, these uh, uh, al-Qaeda operatives attacked this uh, U.S. ship and they killed these sailors and now Sudan is, 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 is going to try to buy their way back into the good graces of uh, white people, the white power structure, by paying this $30 million. So our question was this, because this is one of the things that, that Gullah Jack and I 
had, had discussed way back when we started the blacklist. When is the U.S. going to pay for Sick Willie's Clinton? Sick Willie Clinton's terrorist attack on Sudan. In 1998, Clinton ordered the bombing of a medicine factory, and the country has never yet recovered. So here's, here, here you are. It, 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 look, if I, let, let's say I, for some reason I decided that you know, I was going to do this as the president of Sudan. I would say, uh, you all pay me reparations for the damage you did when Bill Clinton destroyed this medicine factory, one of the medicines they were making was malaria. We don't know how many Africans died because the factory was destroyed, but not just Africans in Sudan, probably Africans all across the continent. And, uh, you know, even, even this white organization says, you know, they, they, Jacobin Magazine is calling it Bill Clinton's act of terrorism. Okay, so... Here, here, here this country is saying, well, we're going to pay for this because we allow these people to train in our country. And here's the United States has engaged in an act of terrorism against you, and you're not even demanding anything from them. Not that they would pay it, but you aren't even demanding anything. And I think this, this shows the sad state of affairs of what, what, they, what they call leadership on the African continent. You know, we saw uh, Uganda's president was 70, all hugged up with Netanyahu, uh, you know, two weeks ago, talking about, you know, that they're going to maybe move the Ugandan embassy to Jerusalem. I guess they don't want the Donald Trump's embassy to be lonely. When Netanyahu wanted Uganda to be the new homeland for uh, the Jews. Well, well, not just Netanyahu, that that. That that went way back, I think, to uh, Herzl. Right. I mean, recently he 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 said that one of the reasons why he was traveling to Uganda to meet with Museveni was because that was what he wanted to do. Yeah, they had identified, you know, when they were when they were initially before before Hitler gave you know gave them the opportunity to seize Palestine, uh, they were looking at Uganda as a home uh, for. Jews who had been scattered across the world. They were going to put a Jewish homeland in the middle of Africa because Uganda at the time was a British colony. But you are correct. Just listening, uh, gentlemen, uh, you know, clearly once again, it reflection of uh, powerlessness. And uh, we were talking about leadership earlier. I think that's where I want to go with, uh, you know, even uh, with an extraordinary leader like Malcolm, and you fill in the blank, you know, the key characteristic of these extraordinary leaders is their ability to empower the people. You know, so with all these extraordinary attributes, you know, ultimately uh, we don't want to just descend to the level of despotism. You know, and I got confidence that that was not uh, Amawali, um, you know, Brother Macaru, you will recall, you know, a tape you gave me about the three characteristics of leadership. Yeah, from Karanga. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, Malcolm, of course. Um, transformative leadership. Transformative leadership. Versus well, the transactional leadership we see in the, in the form of uh, Charlotte's Mayor Val Lyles. Oh, my God, a Republican. In, in, endorsing Bloomberg or Boomberg. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, transformative leadership, what Karinga says is that it's the ability to uh, 
produce uh, programs and practices and ideas which make people self-conscious agents of their own liberation. Agents of their own change and liberation, you know, and that requires a self-transformation, uh, moving away from the Eurocentric, uh, egotistical model, the autocratic, despotic model that we see in, 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 in um, the White House. Uh, but. You know, suffice it and say. other houses, <laughs> not just the White House. <laughs> okay, you can name them, brother. You the out, the outhouse, <laughs> state capitals. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know the mayor's offices. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, joined the slop jars, the outhouses. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, as African people, you know, it's just unconscious. It's, you know, another thing that comes to mind too is um, our submission to the type of brokerage political politics uh, we over the past 40 years have basically uh, disavowed and disconnected ourselves from the activism uh, the pressure type of politics um, you know that was characterized by Dr. King and his mobilization. I think we need to talk about that next week. Yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know we can absolutely make the argument that um uh, Malcolm was ascending to another level of power, and you know we can clearly make the argument that Dr. King, at the time of his assassination, was arguably the most powerful man politically, you know, in the U.S. Because when he went to uh, Memphis, he he carried fifty thousand people with him, uh, as acknowledged by um, uh, adversaries such as Barry Goldwater, and I quote Barry Goldwater, who I had a chance to talk with. I don't make any mistake about it. Dr. King was a power. Lyndon Johnson, of course, used some expletives in describing the threat that Dr. King uh, posed. You know, this N-word preaches about to uh, drive me out of the White House. But, you know, obviously we need to move to a different modality versus, you know, what we see, which is characteristic of this electoral uh, impotence, uh, for lack of a better term. You know, we are charged with guarding up votes, but when it comes to devising policy, you know, we are dismissed to the outhouse. <laughs> you know, your responsibility is as a super masculine menial, you go out and recruit the players, but when it comes to play design, you know, that's to be held, and I'm using sports analogy, that's in the in the hands of uh, the omnipotent administrator. You know, the white man, suffice <laughs> to say, sports and arts in so many instances, Imitates life. Uh, we're rambling here, uh, checking the time, uh, brothers. Uh, so this has been the African Liberation Media with Brother Zamos and Brother Macaroo. The intelligence comes from the guest, Bibi Fahodier. Bibi Fahodier. Bibi Fahodier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this: power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, 
then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world. 